0: Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. In your Week in IndyCar Listener Q&A Show Part 2? I don't know what we call this. Uh, Our pal Jerry Siddeth, he suggested our LCQ episode, Last Chance Qualifiers. Asked Jerry to grab some of his favorite questions from last week's episode and this week's episode. Those questions that were... On the list, but below the red line of death, the uh, cut line edition. So those that he happened to like, but not enough to put above the red line of death that he sends me each week, the questions that we use for the show. So thankfully, Jerry went back and said, you know, of the ones that didn't make the cut, here are some of the ones that I love the most. So that's what we're going to do Also appreciate the fact that there are a number of folks who might be new to the show, might be new to just submitting questions. So, Jerry, once again, kind enough to put all that together. And we'll see how long this takes. This is not meant to be a long episode. And if this works and if folks like it, maybe we will do more of these. uh, Kind of end-of-the-week type deals using those that just didn't quite make it in. But in theory, we're doing a show, so I guess they're making them in now. So let's say a big thank you, as always, to Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and Torontomotorsports.com for supporting all that we do. Recording this, what time is it? 5.58 p.m. on a Thursday evening. In theory as well, I am leaving the house in 12, 11 hours and 59 minutes Uh, Should be heading out No, I don't know what time Uh, I'm leaving very early tomorrow morning Friday morning from Monterey And going to go to the second annual Velocity Invitational uh, Vintage event Where there should be some Very cool McLaren Formula 1 cars 1980s and 90s That I can't wait to do some little Tech tours Uh, Videos here that I'll share with you Uh, Get some cars on track that should be fun. Our pal Benjamin Peterson, new AJ Foyt Racing rookie, he'll be there driving some Group B rally cars, I believe, so going to connect with Benjamin, uh, hopefully do some videos there too, and what, there's some guy named Mario Andretti who's going to be driving a modern McLaren F1 car, so try and do something there with him. Former IndyCar driver Charlie Nierberg, uh, he'll be driving one of the modern-era McLarens he purchased, so hope to capture a podcast with him about his racing life and career. So it should be all kinds of fun. Uh, spent most of this week on the phones, and that's been a very good thing, too. Spoken with team owners, team managers, the majority of the drivers who participated in the evaluation tests at Sebring got interviews with Jake Dennis to put together in post with Marcus Armstrong, spoke with Tom Blomqvist. I might hold that for next week just because it feels like we've had about three Tom stories up, I don't know, in the last couple of days. Um, yeah, some other interesting developments going on. Was going to try and see if I could get my next Silly Season piece done here ASAP but yeah that might be uh, end of next week before that gets finished but yeah a lot of interesting things going on a lot of a lot of there's always movement y'all I wouldn't want to pretend otherwise but I think it's time to get going here and since I'm using the good old couch recording solution how do we get these shows fired off (laughs) It's the dumbest thing ever, but if you know me, or if you have a feel for my personality, you understand that these kinds of things—they just, uh, chef's kiss. Love it. It's just so dumb; it makes me laugh every time. All right, why don't we? Why don't we start off with? Uh, you know, I should also mention that there's also a, a red cut line of death in the cut line of death episode so yeah let me see how many we get that are above the line and uh we'll see if we get below it at all uh we're gonna fire things off though with jim barnett says how does a team recover from a disappointing season does it take personnel moves can the same people come back the next season learn from uh, the past and fight harder you say there was a road to indie team that struggled uh, there were expectations from inside and outside of the organization for them to be fighting for top five finishes in the second half of the season, but that never materialized. says, so I know you experienced some tough seasons in the uh, old IRL days. What does it take for a team to bounce back? Thanks again for sending this in, Jim. Apologize, I've had to punt this uh, two episodes now, but in leading off, as I asked our pal Jerry to do for this show. So... It really depends on the team's approach. There's a couple ways of doing this. So let's say you're an IndyCar team. I know you mentioned Indy Lights team, or I should say Road to Indy team, but let's say you're an IndyCar team, high expectations, and you miss pretty much all of those expectations. You're going to want to try and find out how that happened, so that's the obvious part, but the how it happened... And how you recover, how you fix that, that's pretty interesting. So, in most scenarios, Jim, this is not a post-season thing. Meaning, we got through 17 races, sat down, tried to figure it out. You're going to know pretty darn soon, right? You're going to know two, three, four races into the season as to whether you have missed the mark. Now... What is the root of that? Is it the decisions made during the off-season, right? Is it the research and development that you did and one area or more happened to be off? Was it personnel hired a new this person, that person in specific roles and either they were worse than expected Underperforming new, just right doesn't mean they're bad, just new and lots to learn. There's a lot of angles to this, right? Did we miss it in terms of decisions on trying to come up with speed for the new season and all the things we did in testing, be it on the racetrack, mostly behind the scenes, virtual, right? Through simulation driver-in-the-loop simulation tests, uh, whatever things teams might be doing on their own in the background, damper development's obviously one of them, suspension development. A lot of things that a team can try and do to get better. You have to start to pick apart, did we go down the right path or wrong path? If we're just looking at that side, we'll get to the people part in just a minute, Jim. I'm trying to think back of a couple of examples of a team that had a terrible year and was able to trace it back to some preseason offseason things that really just set their ship on the wrong course and they really were unable to get it back uh, made improvements during the season but never to a place of true competitiveness carlin racing comes to mind when they debuted in indycar high expectations for this uh, title-winning Indy Lights team, super high-functioning junior open-wheel team to do the same moving up to IndyCar. And they had a fairly not great debut. And Trevor Carlin from the outset... I shouldn't say from the outset. Early on, Trevor Carlin was saying, oh, wow, what I'm accustomed to in all the other series that we compete in where we use spec cars just like we do in IndyCar, what we have found is mechanically the cars are super equal. Engine-wise, engines are super equal. Might even be truly a spec engine in some of those series. So understanding the aerodynamics is really where we have been able to differentiate ourselves. So even if it's a small Formula 3 car or something like that, we'll spend time at a wind tunnel or lots of computational fluid dynamic work Lots of stuff to really master the arrow, that's how we level up. Recognized very quickly in IndyCar, that was not the approach to take. All of the teams have a high level grasp of the arrow. Each manufacturer in Chevrolet and Honda have tons of knowledge and do tons of work, wind tunnel, etc., etc., to understand the arrow. Of the cars so this was not much of an untapped area for them to venture into granted they learned plenty themselves but in terms of performance gains this was a non-starter and so trevor recognized somewhat early on oh man thought it would work it's worked everywhere else this isn't it what we really need to focus on Damper side, suspension side, the mechanical grip package, not the aerodynamic grip package. That's what they did for their second season. Pretty decent rise in competitiveness. Think back to the A.J. Foyt team. I, I don't remember whether it was 2018, 2019, but there were some correlation issues in their 7 post shaker rig testing and apparently they spent a ton of money crazy amount of time, crazy amount of hours trying to master everything we just mentioned that Carlin realized they had to go after all the different suspension geometries and settings you might do damper packages and how those work and try and just make everything perfect for road courses, street courses ovals, you name it tons of time, tons of money truly the team invested a lot And none of it was available in terms of speed and performance once the season got going. Like, all the things that were showing great, promising stuff uh, in off-track testing did not transfer at all. Cars looked hopeless and were hopeless. Didn't take them too long to figure out trace back that hey there's some numbers that were off you know the the exaggerating a little bit but the proverbial keystroke oops we hit this number instead of that number now everything's just a little bit off and so what was great in the off-track world of testing and gave us great hope and data you apply that to the car and go and run that at st pete and here and there and whatever else and none of it is matching up this was something that in this how do you recover from a poor season thread jim these are some of the things where you try and figure out wait a minute that doesn't make sense the car should be great but it's not we have drivers who are super capable engineers who are capable we've been doing this for a while we know how to do this what's the root of the problem so couple things there right You have the decision-making part as well at the racetrack. This is another thing that I don't know how much this gets explored. I guess we're doing it now, Jim. The team is looking at, boy, you know, we, we just have started race weekends on the back foot, a little bit off, and it takes a while to find good route. Give us some speed, give our driver some confidence. Takes us a while, and by the time we get to the race, boy, we're you know, we maybe we've gotten better, but we're never quick from the start to build on and continue to stay there. Sometimes you have the opposite. Boy, we're pretty quick and then it went away. Why did it go away? What happened in the second session? What happened in qualifying? Another quick area to add in here, Jim. It's the decision making during the race, right? Hey, we look back and historically there are four caution periods during this event. Uh, The trends say that normally there's a a caution the first lap or two and then somewhere around lap 27 and then again, right, just looking at trends of when things might happen. That'll help a team decide, okay, are we going to do whatever it is, two stop, three stop, whatever it might be, looking at history a bit. Then you get into the race, using that stuff you've got on your laptop or stuck in the back of your head, and then you have some of those decisions. Hey, we decided to gamble and pit early, thinking it would pay off, because historically a caution falls in this area, but it didn't. And boy, that really ruined our day. Those are the kinds of things that if you are having a poor season, you'll do your best to recognize them in season make any adjustments you can you'll do the same thing on the engineering side as well but uh, it is pretty hard to go from being nowhere to winning races um, in the span of a season the big part though Jim is we will have teams that on the operational side the the personnel side will look back go through and do truly CSI levels of forensic exploration into okay, what did we start for uh, practice, first practice session at St. Pete with? What was the setup on the car? How did we arrive at the decision that this was the best starting setup for this car? And then what changes did we make during that session that either made the car better? Worst. Look at all the feedback from the driver, look at the changes you made, and do this in a, re- again, a really forensic type of approach, and coming out of that first practice session. All right, the driver said this and that, we learned this about the tire, and we learned all these things, looked at all the changes we made, and came up with a change to the setup for the second practice session. Also, this is just been a reality for a while, we are not just going to blindly do that. Hey, the driver said they wanted a little bit more camber here and maybe a little bit more of low speed that and a little less of high speed this. We're just going to make those changes overnight, go into second practice session and see how it works. No, what teams will do is input all of that to their simulation program and get computational based feedback on pluses minuses lap time gain potential loss wear rates blah 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 this will be run through proper software to give them ideas as to whether their thoughts on the direction to go has merit or if they should go in a different direction they'll go into that second session make more changes get more input from the driver then make changes going into qualifying, it's looking through all of these processes. What did we do? When did we do it? Why did we do it? Where did it lead us? Hey, uh, everything said, the changes we made overnight going into that second practice session should have worked, should have been great, but... Who knows? Was the ambient temperature up or down? Was some other factor track quality up or down? Did you know? Who knows? Wind a big factor. Were there other variables that might have thrown things off? Um, then you look at okay. Well, did we adjust correctly? Right? Did we put in a little bit more wing, a little less? Did we? How did we react to the conditions? And honestly, Jim this is done session to session, test days every single race from the first time the car turned lap to the last lap that it turned. And teams are looking for to try and deduce where things went wrong. What did we do and how did we get to places that didn't work? Right? Are there any things that are systemic? Right? We tried going in this direction four times on road courses throughout the year and found after that next session we were slower the driver was less happy the right okay well let's not go in that direction anymore you also have the decisions made from the timing stand as well you get a couple of of calls gone wrong Jim and (laughs) doesn't matter if you've got the best setup on the car ever and the best driver ever if you're telling the driver to pit when they shouldn't or to stay out when they shouldn't or we're gonna short fuel the thing to try and get more track position but we really do need a another caution to come out to help us there so we're not having to sip fuel or risk running out And then you don't get that caution, and all of a sudden you might have been running second, third, in line for a podium. But you made a decision that didn't pay off, and your driver was having to go into fuel-saving mode the last 10 laps. And, hey, wait a minute. That person was way up front, and they disappeared. Why are they 14th at the finish line? Well, there you go. It's those things where really and truly, it's an investigative process. And I'll admit, I miss doing that a little bit. Uh, I, I really did enjoy that part, because when you're in it, you're busy, you're obviously always trying to make the best decisions based on the, hopefully, the great information you have, quality of information, not just coming from the data systems on the cars, but from the driver. But again, uh, just... Things go wrong. Which ones are things where you go, we screwed that up, and we need to fix some of these systemic things that are wrong? What areas do you say are a bit of a fluke? Hey, we rolled the dice, and we ended up having to roll the dice a few too many times, and we got bit, and that's why our season ended up with our driver 13th in the standings or something like that. I know none of these things might sound super specific of, aha, throw away the dampers, go to a new damper vendor, or build your own in a different way, or hire different people to build your dampers. I mean, those are pretty obvious, right? Hey, we just made a significant change in that area. And boy, our drivers are just complaining constantly that they can't feel the car, and it's just uh, a handful. All right, well, you know, Get old fred or larry or steve or whomever it is diane in the in the damper department uh you, you might be uh looking for work here um those are the kind of obvious things right last thing i'll mention and if you have more specific questions to throw in about this please do jim happy to talk about this stuff at all times teams are also pretty aware of the quality of the people that they have Not every team is able to hire the best or, you know, the the cream of the crop. Some teams aren't super, super good. And therefore, the best people tend not to want to go to work for them. So there's some limitations there. Why is this team struggling year after year after year? Could it be from a managerial standpoint? Right, Not like the team manager decides what tire pressures are going to be run, and those tire pressures could be wrong and the car can handle poorly, but just what's the the team structure and organization you've set up? How well are you regarded? How highly are you regarded or not regarded in the paddock? Do people want to go to work for you? Um, Are you one who doesn't like conflict too much? That's a thing. It's a real thing. You know, do you do you take folks to heart more than you should? Well, I know. They, you know, they've got a family, kids in school, and you know, daughter. She's been sick, and you know, this person isn't doing a whole lot to help us be uh, the best we can be. But I, I wouldn't want to. Uh, put them at risk in life, so we'll hold on to that person and just hope things get better. Like, that's... can't tell you how often that's what actually happens. You would think there was a ruthlessness uh, across all high-level sports teams, IndyCar teams in this regard. In some cases. Select cases. Mostly, though... That's not how uh, things are going to get done. So, I mean, look, I've never claimed to be great at what I did as a mechanic, engineer, team manager, any of that stuff. Right? I was very good at times, good most of the time, not good sometimes, never great. I know where my talent was, where my motivation was. When I was really motivated, that was when I was at my best. And when I wasn't, this is kind of normally the case, I was not. Anyone looking at me on whatever teams that I worked at, if they were superstars in their position or just known to be like, wow, that person's amazing, if they were to have looked at me with whatever team I was working on, they would have been critical of me. Okay, yeah. All right, I know that guy. Yeah, he's okay. You know, he's good, decent, whatever. Not great. And I'm just being totally honest. I was, and I was never had any, any misconceptions, misperceptions about myself. Knowing that I can also walk up and down pit lane and for those who I know and those that I'm familiar with, go, hey, you know, I'm really glad you're with that team. That's awesome. But you know, if it weren't for that team holding on to you, you probably wouldn't be working in the series. Don't know if the person in this role here is truly the best and capable of making that team better in the area that they need. Like, that's just a really common, basic thing. So I don't say that to be critical of anybody. I mean, uh, what the <laughs> the uh, Thursday night NFL game that's being played right now, Washington Commanders and Chicago Bears. Like, these are not two teams that would be accused of an excess of excellence as a whole. And so you look at other sports teams, and other forms of of sport. You go, okay, yeah, hey, my Golden State Warriors, they're pretty darn good. The Boston Celtics, pretty darn good. Wow, they've got amazing players. Name the team that you love the most and say, wow, they're stacked with talent. Then you look at about 50% of the other teams, if not a little more, and you go, yeah, they got a couple of stars, but uh, got a lot of role players. And role players aren't necessarily going to take you to the Super Bowl, uh the NBA Finals or an IndyCar championship. In my time, again, it's not false modesty, it is accuracy. It's a good role player. Very good at times, a little less others, but I was a role player. Uh I know what it's like to be that person where you go, "Hey, you know, if if you were to upgrade my position to someone else, I probably wouldn't argue with you. If you can get someone better, um, you'd probably have someone better in this role than me. So these are some of the things you've got to look at. How willing are you as a team to be ruthless, to place the team success ahead of the life and circumstances of your employees? Comfort's another thing. Right uh ah, you know, good old Charlie's been around here for five years, ten years, fifteen years, and you go okay, cool um that's who you want to go with that's who you go with. just you can't be too upset if you're running fourteenth every season because that approach is not what makes teams uh super crazy uh laden with championships and everything else so that's where we are at on that deep dive thanks again jim appreciate you sending this in What do we move to greg fetchick how you doing greg this is marshall this is really isn't a question it's more like a plea this is please give me hope oh man i gotta infuse you with hope uh the future of any car for me anyways is not having a new car anywhere before i don't know 2050 He says i exaggerate a little bit but it really kind of depressing is there really that little money available to teams of the series to spend? Or are they just cheap? <laughs> I love it. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, this doesn't bode well. So keep waiting for the announcement that the engine is going to be delayed again. Please tell me I'm being pessimistic. There really is hope for the future. There is hope, Greg. But yeah, and I know there are a couple of y'all... Uh, that asked or you know said, "Hey, on a recent episode, you mentioned uh, we're not going to have anything new, new, new for a little while because of budget issues and financial conservatism overriding things. Why? Why is that the case? Why, if we can spend millions upon millions to go racing every year?" Per team, why can't we spend whatever that number is—five hundred thousand or something, six, seven hundred thousand—for a new car? Again, it's—it's it's a great question. I do hope that we're going to have a new car before too long, but I don't know exactly when. I, if I had to guess, twenty-five, six, or seven, maybe. Um, let me answer that overarching question there about why uh, can't we have something new sooner? The money that it's going to take to go hybrid in 2024 is going to be significant. So this is going to be costly for every team, every chassis. What is that number going to be? I don't know yet. But there are going to be decent amounts of new things that are needed to accommodate this new hybrid power plant and so the hybrid power plant first of all is a big question what is the annual lease price going to be is it going to be more than the roughly 1.1 1.2 that it's been for many years across both brands i would be surprised if it wasn't but is it a nominal thing does it go up to 1.3 or is it 1.5 i don't know But if you run three or four cars, all of a sudden, well, hey, collectively, that's another million-ish, maybe a little more, a little less. But who knows? We need to put together across all of our cars. Then there's the everything else that you need to go with it. So pretty much everything from the bulkhead, uh, the, the surface that the engine bolts onto on the tub, more or less everything that is drivetrain related from the firewall back is going to be new. Not only that new engine we mentioned, but also new bell housing that's going to be much lighter. That's going to cost money to buy. Uh, How are they going to do the energy recovery system made by Molly? Is that going to be part of the engine lease? Right? What does that cost per year Keep in mind there's tech support that goes with that, service contracts for the units and whatnot. How is that handled? Is that lumped into an engine lease or is that done separately? What is that going to cost per season per car? Is it $100,000, $200,000? I mean, I don't know. But there's money, more money right there. Uh, The transmission is going to be brand new going to be lighter, robust, er, er. It's going to be all kinds of things, er, er. I don't think the suspension, from what I'm hearing most recently, is going to need to be upgraded to something beefier, knowing that the car itself will be heftier and beefier as well. But the half-shafts, the the axles will be brand new because we're putting down more power, and those need to be capable of handling it. Braking system, right? Nothing's coming for next year, but for 2024, meant to have an all-new, larger braking system to handle the stopping required for a car that will be faster in a straight line. Should be, but also definitely heavier to slow down. So all-new brakes, front, back, just across the board. Um, What about aerodynamics? Are we going to need to redo the road course, street course, high downforce package? to put more downforce on the front of the car so that since we have all the added physical weight of this, these things at the back of the car, do we need more aerodynamic downforce up front to tip the balance a little bit more forward to make the car more balanced to drive? That would cost money as well. It's a number of things here that go with this, Greg. So I know we're main question here is, please tell me we're going to have a new car sometime soon. I I hope we will, but the reasoning as for why we won't, which is costs, plus the series from Roger Penske on down is pretty darn happy and of the belief that, hey, this Delara DW12 can keep going for even longer, then why bother changing it? There's a, a steep tab for every single car And keep in mind, we're not just talking about the primary cars that we see racing, but most teams have backup cars as well. Some have three, like some have many cars. So when we're talking about forking out, if we use Chip Ganassi Racing or Andretti Autosport, right now are only four car teams. If we're thinking about them, you've got the four primary cars, Plus, you need to update the backup cars as well, the spare cars, uh, with, again, the new bell housings and transmissions and yada, 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 brakes and so on. Um, now, all of a sudden, that's eight cars <laughs> at some so Again, I don't know what the total number is. If you take the whatever added price is going to be for the lease and then all the other stuff I mentioned these are millions upon millions of dollars Uh, those teams will be forking out just to go racing with the same Delara DW12 in 2024 and 2025 so that's why I'm thinking IndyCar is going to want to give the team owners the team owners are probably asking for the most part hey, got a big hill to climb financially for 24 let us get through that, give us just a little while then maybe we'll be ready to talk about uh, going to an all-new chassis. But again, what is that all-new chassis? I don't know. Will it be all-new in the areas that weren't new in the componentry changes for 2024? I gotta believe they would say, hey, we'll just use the same transmission and bell housing and this brakes and so on and so forth because these were all just new a year or two or whatever ago. But... Again, you've, that's still a big question too so that's why i can't give you an exact time and that's the financial reason why teams are very reluctant to commission a new car or i shouldn't say them commission, but say yes please commission something new and make it happen now um that's where we're at no reason to be pessimistic you and i are in the same place greg uh I I get bored very quickly with cars that are around for more than two or three years. And you go, okay. Uh, thankfully, IndyCar has done some new and different things over the years with the DW12. So that's good. But for what we're looking at right now, we've been staring at the aero screen for a couple of years. The UAK18 bodywork that came in 2018. That's been around for a while. Um, yeah, we're getting close to point in time where i'd be more than welcome to see something different to the eyes uh like you it's coming brother it, it, it will happen i gotta believe uh but will it happen before scott dixon elio castroneves will power and i might be forgetting one or two others retire i don't know Uh, Daniel Espinoza, How you doing, Daniel? You say, does Force Indy have the means to run a two-car program in Indy Lights next year? One for Ernie Francis in the second season and another for Miles Rowe to help him uh, skip a step of the ladder like Jagger Jones. I would say, do they have the means? Of course. That's Roger Penske. Is that what's going to happen? No. Uh, We will see a single... Force Indie branded entry for Ernie and then be on the lookout for miles being confirmed in Indie Pro two thousand. Uh Michael Heaton says, Is there any talk from IndyCar addressing the issue of declining attendance at some of the tracks? Any specific strategies? No. I need to keep asking about this though, Michael, because I did ask somewhat recently about this topic at one or two specific events and was told uh, there was no real concern or strategy there. It is a wider topic of discussion. I do question how many of the tracks we are seeing that looked lighter in attendance than the previous year. Is that new declining? Is that gradual declining that's actually been happening for multiple years or is it just a recent thing and for some that have been sitting at or around the same number but not a great number is that just the reality or is there something that can be done to improve that we know that there are things that can be done but is there a real initiative that folks have in mind to address that i don't know when I asked about this most recently, I did not come away with a great feeling like they were seeing the same things I was seeing, but I'll keep asking and hopefully get an answer for you. Uh, random Diane, say, what's a story you wanted to tell? Say, you love the podcast. In regards to your wife. Thank you. You asked what is that IndyCar story that you really want to tell, uh, but you don't get the chance to write about been keeping a a growing list of names, Diane, for a couple of years of drivers who excelled, if not were outright champions, on the road to Indy back in the 80s, 90s, 2000s. Some of those were at the time we thought, wow, you are going to IndyCar and you are going to be a, a big deal. And they either never made it, and that's the majority of the names that I have on the list, or made it, but made it briefly and flamed out. Not necessarily they flamed out, as in they crashed or their talent was insufficient, but just they were there brief, briefly and then gone. So that's one that, yeah, I want to dive into that because there are some names, some drivers who, uh, when I was coming up watching them, I might have been. Competing in those series, you know, with teams as a mechanic or whatever, and thought, "Wow, they're really going to be awesome." Can't wait, and it just never materialized. So that's probably the the biggest one that I've just just need to make it happen. Uh, The list of things I want to do versus the list of things that I actually get done. Oh boy, (laughs) there's a pretty wide wide uh, gap between those things, unfortunately, but. Hopefully, I'll get that done sometime soon, Diane. Uh, Greg Secor, say Marshall. May have discussed this before, but wouldn't it be advantage, an advantage, or advantageous uh, if IndyCar and Indy Lights use the same tub? Uh, also, say glad to hear the positive reports about your wife. I hope they continue. Thank you, Greg. Yes, uh, we're we're getting in happier and happier places here in the home front. Um, I don't know if uh, it would be advantageous. Uh, bigger cars tend to cost more money and the components on those cars tend to cost more money. Um, that's why doing smaller cars uh, that cost less money tends to fit a road to indie environment than an indie car budget environment. So, uh, hard to say. Um, I've been, Never really thought this was the answer, but I know that uh, I continue to hear from folks that do. Uh, let's see. Rohan Monday, And I don't know if I got your last name right, so I apologize if I didn't. Uh, you say, if you had to add more races to the calendar, which tracks would you add? Uh, you say, also with having three prominent drivers, Power, Dixon, and McLaughlin from Australia and New Zealand. Do you think IndyCar would ever consider racing down under to grow the sport? I think they'd absolutely consider it. If someone stepped up and said, Hi, we're going to air freight all of your cars and equipment and everything and spend those millions upon millions and then pay you millions to be here. Um, This is what once happened. And it was awesome. There's just nobody stepping up to do that right now, Rohan. So... Yes. Trust me. I want to go back down under (laughs) and cover racing again. I'd love to do that. But yeah, uh, someone's got to pay for it. IndyCar is not the one to uh, fork out millions just to go play internationally. As for what would I like to add? Hmm. I know that I've, I've mentioned a couple over the years of things that I love and would love to see, but also... Was fully aware that, like, yeah, we could never go there unless changes were made, uh, because things would just the cars would be way too fast. If I could make the safety additions to the track, push some barriers back, add runoff, greater amounts of runoff, etc., we would go to Road Atlanta, we would go to Virginia International Raceway, and we would go to Mosport, aka Canadian Tire. Motorsports Park I would also on that same exact tip say we would be going to Lime Rock because who doesn't want to see cars lap a track in I don't know what 40 seconds or something crazy less than that Um, give me the the tracks Rohan where you just are in awe of the speed and the physics and the drivers, things where, and all those tracks would have us just screaming because we could not fathom how quickly the cars were going and how committed the drivers had to be. We'd be losing our crap if we got to go to any of those four tracks, but for all of them with indie cars, right, I realize that IMSA goes there with their prototypes, or GTs, depending on some of the ones that I named, but Right. Those are amazing. Those are great safe cars. All of them fully enclosed cockpits. Lots of, you know, lots of space between them and barriers. Open wheel car, even with the aero screen, but open wheels getting tangled, getting thrown into trees over fences at insane rates of speed. Um, There's just something that if Indy cars were to go to any of those four tracks we would have to have some pretty pretty dynamic adjustments to those circuits to host them um, Carlos Oliden you asked do I think the FIA should tune their super license points for IndyCar yes of course it's really elitist and stupid with how they do things um, Silvio Constantine Vladuccia? If I name, if I use your name in the slightest of correct ways, uh, you say next year we will have the car number six and zero six on track. You're referring to the Meyers racing entries. This will be confusing. Why does IndyCar allow this? Well, we had them on track this year and we also had them on track the year before. Um, I don't see how or why it would be confusing though. Because the number six is very different than the number zero six. Uh, because there's a zero in the number of one of those cars that isn't on the other. Um, that's why it would stand out to me. I mean, we'll also have the 60 as well from Meyer Racing. So, yeah. Um, I don't know. Now, what would be confusing is if Felix Rosenquist's number six, Aaron McLaren SP Chevy, and Elio Castroneves' number zero six, Shank Racing Honda, had the same colors, same livery, same everything, and bore the number six and zero six. I could see how folks would be confused by that. But seeing as how they are different teams, different engine suppliers, different colors, different liveries, different sponsors. I I am at least struggling to find a way where folks would be confused by uh, those vehicles on track. Uh, why don't we go to Neil? You're going to close the show for us. And I've asked a couple times for you to help me to pronounce your last name correctly. And I think I do it differently every time. So I'm going to come try and come up with another way do Iker? there we go <laughs> i mean if you're gonna let me murder it uh, i'll just murder it uh and you say continued prayers for your wife which is really sweet of you neil and you also say i just love how wrong you are in saying my name let the creativity fly that's why i went with do Iker. um say off-season gripe oh no we threw it. We threw in, we threw in uh, the the dreaded hashtag. Well, you didn't put the hashtag. That's a problem. It said I personally miss the way IndyCar did qualifying. Tell me, Neil, about your impersonal thoughts. Uh, because if you're going to use the word personally, I assume you're using that to distinguish uh, not impersonal but personal. Otherwise, just saying I kind of—that's th- all you need there. I got it. But anyways, I personally. Missed the way IndyCar did qualifying. Slowest half of the field, got 30 minutes, with the fastest half following them. It allowed for teams to test the track conditions, make adjustments. There was time left. There was a red flag. I believe they made the adjustment for suspense and TV viewership, talking about going to the knockout rounds in the uh, fast 12, fast 6. See, so, But I can't imagine qualifications are drawing much of a rating, and I think there's too much dead time in the current format. Any chance IndyCar will go back to the old format rather than these short qualifying sessions? You know, I hadn't really thought about going back, but now that you've mentioned it, I'm liking it. I like that idea. The, the knockout stuff can be fun or cool or whatever, but yeah, the the start stop nature of it. Right? Hey, we just did ten minutes qualifying, and but all right, but now we're gonna sit for ten and wait and just talk about whatever and i realize you talked to the drivers who didn't make it through and you know there, there's if you're watching on your phone tablet or television it's probably not too bad because nbc keeps it moving always putting somebody in something in front of you showing you some replays but i would have to imagine if you're just sitting in the grandstands it might actually be a little bit boring okay cool Ten minutes on, ten minutes off. Ten minutes on, ten minutes off. Um, I do like the idea of splitting the field and having this just ramping up towards going for pole. Now, you know, we do have Knockout and F1 as well, and that seems to be pretty exciting too, but I wonder. I wonder if IndyCar decided not necessarily on a, a really tight, condensed track or one with a lot of slower turns where people get jammed up at like a St. Pete or Long Beach but I wonder if they might try that at a, a larger track where traffic should not be much of an issue maybe Road America and I don't know if 30 minutes are needed but you know maybe it's 20 15 or 20 and just let teams ramp up and ramp up and build. And hopefully in those last few minutes, that's where we see, you know, the insane laps getting turned. Other thing that I'd love to see return is the ability to modify the car to go faster, right? Really not allowed to do much. Uh, pretty much the idea you have for qualifying setup is what you use. Well, Look you're going to give people time to go out and do laps, all right, let them adjust the cars. right? Take those, take the engine cover off, the damper hatch off, clickety-click on the dampers. Uh, if you want to make a ride height change, although that would be a little drastic and qualifying, but like, hey, there's a lot of things you can fart around with if you're going to try and get the ultimate speed out of the car. Why do you let teams do that in first practice, second practice, warm up? In the race, you could do it too, right? Obviously, you'd lose some time if you're taking bodywork off to make adjustments, but I'm just saying the one and only session where you can't touch it, it is whatever it is, it's qualifying. Well, if the goal is to be the fastest car, the fastest driver of all in the session, oh no, that, that part's always stood out to me, Neil, as something that, just as in pretty steep conflict with what the uh, session's all about. I know this has become an accepted thing across most forms of racing. So it's not like IndyCar is doing something that's totally, totally out of the norm. But I don't know. If you're going to try and see how fast a car can go, why place limitations on that from a tuning standpoint? So I like the idea. Uh, I'll, I'll float it to Jay Fry next time we speak and then I'll just wait for him to laugh at me and say, Pruitt, I mean, it's not like there was a question, but just thank you for reconfirming how much of an idiot you happen to be. But I'll try. We'll see Neil. We'll keep pushing. Y'all, appreciate you. Jerry, appreciate you as well for putting together our first ever Below the Red Line of Death cut line episode, our last chance qualifying show. thank you as well to Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com. And if this works... We'll try it again next week. And even from some of the ones who didn't make the cut in the <laughs> the red line of death, um, maybe some of y'all will be next week's. I don't know, but I appreciate y'all. Speak to you here soon.